Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our conversation with Jack Knipe. Jack has a PhD in International Education and Linguistics, and is currently an assistant professor of English and Spanish and an International Student Support Coordinator at Limestone University. He is an extremely impressive polyglot who speaks nine languages and comes with a wealth of knowledge in social linguistic. Critical thinking and equitable education. In this episode, Jack shares vulnerably about his journey pursuing a PhD while battling an autoimmune condition. He also explains many fascinating and important topics, including intercultural competency, cognitive linguistics, and psychological frame theory. Using examples from his classroom and stories from his past. Jack delivers a conversation that is both emotionally moving and inspiring. Please note that there are a few sensitive and potentially triggering topics discussed in the end of this episode, including death and suicide. So please feel free to skip accordingly. We hope you enjoy this week's episode of Discover More with us and Jack Knipe. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More. Where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. in higher education, we talk a lot about theory, but I think sometimes theory doesn't play out in practice. And one of the benefits that I think I had in my first master's program, my master of education at Covenant College, was we talked a lot about theory, but 100% of it was funneled back into the classroom. What does this theory look like in practice? And that was very valuable for me. And we read a lot about just holistic teaching and teaching the whole learner. And so that's carried with me, even into higher education. That was when I was teaching K twelve. But even into higher education, I think a lot of that has played out. And even since then, reading, for example,、uh, Mikhail Bakhtin. Bakhtin is one of、uh, the people who I study a lot in the field of linguistics. He wrote a lot about、uh, something called dialogism and monologism, or、uh, monologism. Sorry. In brief, dialogism says so. He was more of a、uh, literary critic. And so, with literary criticism, he said, when you go to a text and you read a novel by somebody, and they present different characters, every character should be viewed as having their own storyline. So, rather than the author of the text sharing their ideology through seven different characters, you should read it through the lens of these seven characters have their own voices and they're coming through on the page, and they have their own backstory and their own backdrop. So dialogism plays out in the classroom in the same way. So recognizing theoretically that every student that I have has their own story, they all have their own narrative. They're all coming through on the page, i.e., my classroom. And like you said, we can't dismiss them. It's very dehumanizing to pretend that all of these students can learn all the same way, and they all have the same capacity, and they all have the same background, and this is how it should be taught. Yeah, that's all I'll say about that for now. Yeah. For sure, and I think that bridges really well into the next question I want to pose because 
often I feel that this understanding comes from like a shared empathy or like a shared experience of going through challenging things, having difficult situations come up and ultimately working through them. Like I don't think you'd be the teacher you are able to empathize with these people without your own internal struggles. And this is something that you courageously shared with us on the clubhouse, which is how I first connected with you. And that was your battle with an autoimmune condition and disease. Um, So I would love to kind of pick your brain around what first and foremost, the story around it, kind of the big lessons you learned and ultimately how that, you know, affects not only who you are as a teacher, but just a person as a whole. Sure. So when I was very young, I would have lots of stomach issues and nobody ever knew what it was. And uh, my parents, even though we didn't have much money, my dad said health comes first. Like, I don't care if we go broke, we're going to take you to the doctor. And a lot of times it would be to the point where after dinner, I would lie on the couch and I would literally just scream or like get into the fetal position. I was just in excruciating pain and we never knew what it was. I had lots of stomach issues all growing up. We'd get sick to my stomach very often. Um, And then sometime around puberty, my lips would swell randomly for no reason. And we couldn't figure out why it was, it would look like an allergic reaction. So I would sometimes look like hitch. Uh, and my face would just swell up. And so I went to the doctor and they said, oh, it's probably an allergy. You'll just have to keep track of what you're eating when it happens. But there was no rhyme or reason. It'd be like, oh, I didn't even eat today and my face swelled up. Or, uh, and it was like, oh, well, maybe it's mold or mildew. And um, got to college and it continued. And like I said, I was sick all the time. I had to have a few root canals because my teeth were getting bad. We can never figure it out. And when I was in college, I went to a, a specialist. My dad finally said, you know, you need to go to a specialist because I was getting sick to my stomach a couple times a day. So I ended up at a specialist. He had them run some tests and same thing. They couldn't figure out what it was. And that doctor who I won't name, but he said something that was really, really hurtful at the time. And he, he said, look, I know your financial situation. You shared that with me. And he said, either you can continue to waste your parents' money and not come up with an answer, or you can just suck it up like most adults and just deal with it. And it was so harmful. I called my parents crying. I said, am I wasting your money? And my dad said, no, like we know this isn't a fake illness. You know, a lot of illnesses are invisible, but now it started to manifest itself on my face. So it's like, no, we, even if it were invisible, which it's not anymore, we still believe you and we want you to get to the bottom of this. Well, it subsided for a while. I did, um, for, then they said, maybe it's, um, celiac disease. And I went to a doctor who said it could be celiac disease, but at the time he said, you know, there's a test we can run. But if it comes out that it's celiac disease, you'll have to follow a gluten-free diet. And that's really all there is at this point. And he said, but if we run that test, it'll show up as a pre-existing condition. And then when you try to get insurance, they might not cover it. If we don't run the test and you just follow a gluten-free diet anyway, try that and see if it clears itself up. And that way it doesn't show up on your record as having a pre-existing condition. You didn't get the test, so we don't know, but you were still able to cure it in the same way. So I did a gluten-free diet for seven years where I literally didn't do any gluten and things were really going well. I didn't have any face swelling. I didn't get sick. So I thought things were okay. And then randomly my face started to swell up again. It got to the point several times where it went to my throat and my throat, I was going through anaphylaxis. I had to go to the hospital. And even then the EpiPen didn't always work. It would subside, but not at the rate that it should have with an EpiPen. And so they were still not sure And I ended up finding an immunologist when I was living in DC who discovered it was hereditary angioedema. So what that means is that people have, in your blood, you have a protein, everybody has a protein called C1 esterase inhibitor. 
And some people either don't have it or they have it, but it doesn't function. And that's my case, hereditary angioedema type two. And so if I'm under extreme stress or duress, or if I'm getting faced with like a, a virus, so like if, if, some, if I'm around somebody with the flu and my body's trying to fight it off, it gets confused and my, my eyes will swell shut so I can't even open them. Uh, my lips will swell up, my cheeks will swell up, my nostrils will swell shut. Sometimes it'll go to my hands or my knuckles, like they're just like big fat knuckles. That was definitely a big part of my upbringing that was kind of in the background. So I think that has definitely helped. I'll just leave that there for now. Yeah. I mean, again, appreciate you sharing. I think I'm curious around just like the perspectives you take or like how you can pursue a PhD while navigating all of these health concerns. Like what would you say to people that are battling diseases like this that aren't necessarily crippling like you still were going about your everyday life but I can imagine it was always on the front of mind at some point kind of just was it a compartmentalization was it a trying to find the joy of what you were doing in the classroom but I'm just fascinated with the psychological journey of what this might have looked like like you said it wasn't crippling and I kind of normalized it for me it was normal like stomach issues my poor family hears me all the time like I feel like probably once every other day, I'm saying like, oh, my stomach's off. And my family's like, yeah, that's the norm for you. But I just say it in passing because um, my stomach does get off fairly often because it also, like I said, it affects the soft tissue. So it can be your eyes, your lips, but sometimes it's my intestines. So they constrict or swell up and it's extremely painful. That level of pain isn't as common anymore like it used to be. Like I said, all growing up, it was. Uh, now it's not as common. When I was in grad school, when I was in my doctoral program, it happened a couple times where I had to go to the hospital. My eyes were swollen shut and I couldn't go to class. And I actually had one professor who I sent her the pictures of my entire face swelled up so I couldn't even open my eyes. And I just said, I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to class today. I actually had a nurse from the emergency room send the text. I said, could you take a picture of me and send this? Yeah, I'll give you the email address. So she did send it and um, that professor, I won't say names or anything, but she gave me an A minus in the class because she said, as a doc student, you're not allowed to miss class. And I said, well, I, I didn't have a choice. I showed you the picture and she said, it's just not fair to the rest of the students to give you an A. And I said, but I've done all of the work and I've gotten A's on all the papers. And she said, right, but for participation, you missed a class. And so therefore I'm gonna drop you down to an A minus, which in a doc program means literally nothing. But still, the lack of empathy and understanding was really eye-opening to me. Uh, and I just thought, I don't want to ever be that professor. So I am very cognizant. I have students that do have invisible disease. I have students, one of the few positives that's come up during the pandemic is uh, Limestone University did open up to face-to-face. And so what we've done is we started contact tracing students that have COVID and also testing students for COVID. And we've surprisingly had a better system than I was expecting on the front end. but we immediately we test students all the time and we've had several students with covid if they have covid we put them in isolation and we contact trace them we've got seating charts for where students are in the classroom and we tell them they can sort it out with their professor so every professor is kind of doing it differently but what i've said is i don't care if you are home in isolation or physically in the classroom as long as you're in one of the two locations you can either zoom in while i'm teaching and watch me teach And of course, you won't be able to participate as much, but you're still there or you're physically in the classroom. I don't care which one, but you'll be counted present as long as you're in one of those locations. So I usually on any given day have four or five students that are zooming in. 
Well, a couple students have messaged and said, look, I woke up this morning, I was sick to my stomach. Can I zoom in even though I don't have COVID? And I said, absolutely. And it's been a cool way that I thought going forward now that we have this technology in place and we've kind of normalized it, I'm going to allow students that have any kind of issues that just say, you know, I don't think I can physically be there today because of health issues. I'm not gonna question them. I'm not gonna belittle them. I'm not gonna make them show me a doctor's note. I get it. We all have different things going on. So as long as there's, it's the same with what students call me. I tell the students at the beginning of every semester, um, I go through this long diatribe about titles and I explain to them, every professor is different when it comes to titles and honorifics. And for me, I don't care what students call me. And I tell them this, I say, some people call me Jack, Dr. Jack, Dr. K, Dr. Knight, Professor K, Professor Knight. And again, this goes back to differences of background. So I had a friend in my doc program who grew up Quaker and in her sect of Quakerism, titles show this power differential and Quakers are about keeping peace and that there should be peace among everybody. And so some Quakers believe that, you know, if you call somebody doctor, you're saying that they're more important than the person that you call mom or that you call by their first name. So they call everybody by their first name. Likewise, if you if you know any Europeans, the term doctor is usually reserved for medical doctor, whereas the term professor is used for a professor in the classroom. And I'm aware that in my classroom, I've got all students from all different backgrounds. So I tell them, I don't care what you call me as long as it's respectful. We need to have a mutual respect. And if for you, a lot of my Southern students are like, absolutely not, you are Dr. Knight. Cool, call me Dr. Knight, that's cool. So likewise, when it comes to cell phones in the classroom, when it comes to Skyping in rather than coming to class because you don't feel well, as long as that's done from a place of respect and we have mutual respect that we are not trying to get one over on each other, I honestly don't care. Um, and so I think going forward, like I said, I wanna have that as an option for students that are just in a place where they feel like I can't physically be in the classroom today. Then I'll get fewer emails that say, I have diarrhea, I can't make it too fast. I've gotten a few of those and I'm like, you could have just said I can't make it today. <laughs> Yeah, I think we talked briefly about this battle of yours during our conversation on Clubhouse, the fascinating relationship between pain and purpose. And I think the common saying in the U.S. at least is treat others how you want to be treated. I think the better way to say that is treat others how they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Because I think this concept was introduced to us by one of the guests and she called it uh, U.S. has a lot of phenomenon that's related to woke Olympics. No, I'm more woke you are, right? No, I was like, no, 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 you're not as woke. I'm, I'm more woke. And here's X, Y, and Z. And they, they drop their credentials or their experiences, whatever. And But the other concept similar to that is like the hardship Olympics. As people like to put their hardships on a pedestal and compare that more belittle other people's hardships. And until the most recent atrocities in the Asian American communities that slaughtered six Asian women in Atlanta and a lot of the brutal killings of Asian elders, for the longest time, I always felt self-conscious talking about the racism and the stereotypes and the microaggressions I went through as an Asian American, because I often compare my hardships with my fellow Alliance and fellow you know, minority Black Americans. And I was like, well, my racism sucked. I was called chink. I was you know, belittled in numerous ways, but at least my life was never threatened. That was the self story I told myself. And that was a narrative I lived for so long in the United States. But then through the most recent events, I realized that A, that's a limiting belief, 
right, is that every single truth and every single lanes of truth matter equally so. Because on a baseline, we're all humans. And yes, difference, discriminations have more far-reaching implications, but that doesn't undermine your own truth. Because like, you know, it's like the comparison where like, oh, rich people or famous people must have no issues. No, they share equal issues, mental health issues, emotional issues. On a level to them, it's very consuming. But then a lot of people who don't have that wealth or that position may not understand that, but that is okay, right? We don't always have to understand as long as we operate from a point of empathy. Like, you don't have to contextualize everything. You don't have to understand. You just respect that person as a human and respect the baggages come with that person. And I think your story demonstrates that beautifully. So from your own trauma, from your own painful journey, who battled this condition of yours entire life and you still do so sparingly, you're able to not imply your own truth onto your students, but then view that as like a lens of empathy to be more inclusive and be more understanding, which I think once again, alludes to the person you are as a teacher. So um, speaking of being a teacher, um, you have so many overlapping expertise and so many interests in your background. Like before we started this interview, Aiden and myself were brainstorming like, where do we even start? You have so much experience. I mean, your LinkedIn page was 14 pages long. So, <laughs> but uh, I think talking about all these things, I'm pretty interested in a thing called cognitive metaphor theory, because I think a lot of the things that you talked about, including critical thinking is all about cognitive abilities or even the meta cognition on top of that. So uh, I'll love to start there and we'll go in and out from different aspects of your life and your profession. But would you tell us, cause I don't know what that even means. So if you could unpack that and define that for the audiences and for ourselves and talk about some of the concepts from that topic. Okay, so cognitive linguistics is a an interesting field of linguistics because you know when I I started linguistics in undergrad and was really fascinated and I heard about this concept of cognitive linguistics and in my mind I hear the word cognitive and I think psychology and so I immediately thought oh this is psycholinguistics well it's sometimes a controversial term because it can mean slightly different things to different people but the field of cognitive linguistics uh, as far as I've studied it is and taken coursework on, deals with this idea that as humans, we are unique in that we are bipedal creatures. We have our eyes in the front of our head. We walk upright. And so our lived experience are different than the lived experience of a deer or a bear or a rabbit. And so specific to us having opposable thumbs, for example, those things all cause us to have specific life experiences. And as a result, our language has evolved based off of the fact that we are humans. And so I know that gets like really complicated, but the idea is that um, specifically talking about metaphor or metaphor analysis. So as humans, we have lived experiences and sometimes we refer to one thing in the terms of another thing. So we use one th- the domain of one thing to describe the domain of another thing. So this can be in the form, we've got the idea of synecdoche, metonymy, um, but specifically the idea of metaphor. Uh, When I took a course in cognitive linguistics in my doc program, I remember Dr. Lourdes Ortega at Georgetown, and um, she asked me to take notes for one of the classes. I think a class two is going to be absent. She said, could you take notes? Oh, she had each student take one week of the course and just do notes for the class to send out to the class. That's what it was. So this week I took notes and I thought, you know what I'm going to do that's going to be interesting is when I'm all done, I'm going to look through and see how often metaphor pops up in my notes, like the use of metaphor. 
And I thought what I'll do is I'll highlight or put in bold every metaphor that I used to describe what was happening in the class. And it was uncanny. It was a fun exercise, but it's metaphors. We use metaphors left and right. In this interview, you could probably find hundreds of, it, of metaphors that were used without even realizing it. So metaphor analysis goes through and says, okay, if we look at corpus data, if we have like a, you know, if we dig up corpus, like a whole bunch of speech, if I look at President Biden's inauguration speech, for example, and I look for any metaphors he used and I figure out why did he use that metaphor? So that's what kind of what uh, metaphor analysis is. So Lakoff and Johnson are kind of two of the big names in that field. Uh, they wrote Metaphors We Live By back in the early 1980s, I think it was. And that's kind of where the idea got started. Now, specifically, I work in the field of critical metaphor analysis. So the term critical, I think it's abused so often, and it drives me insane when I hear people throw it around willy-nilly because they think like, oh, it sounds good if you use the word critical in front of something, but it has a very specific meaning. So with critical thinking, for example, it has a specific meaning. With critical in the field of linguistics or languages often refers to critical theory. So critical theory as a theory that developed, it's a long story, but the short version is critical theory deals with issues of power. So it's related to the concept of Marxism, which scares a lot of people off, but critical theory says there are people who have power and there are people who don't. How do we balance that out? So critical metaphor analysis goes in and looks at metaphors people use and says, how do these metaphors relate to the power structures in our society? So we talked a little bit about earlier about the idea of systemic racism. Here's a classic example. So uh, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota last year came under fire because she was talking about America allying itself with Israel a lot and sending a lot of uh, funds to Israel. And she was trying to make a play on the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu was in charge of, or in Israel. And she said, yeah, when it comes to dealing with Israel, it's all about the Benjamins. So it was a very controversial term slash metaphor that she used because she was talking about Benjamins, Benjamin Franklin, money, but at the same time trying to make this play on the term. So it was a super controversial. So that's just one example of a metaphor that has to do with power structures. So that would be what people look at. So for example, a study that I did in uh, my doc program on critical metaphor analysis is I talked to a lot of Gaelic speakers in Scotland because this is my research. So in Scotland, there are three languages that are spoken as indigenous languages or autochthonous languages are called. So there's English with a Scottish accent, Scots, which is related to English that I mentioned earlier, but they are different. Um, and that's actually controversial. Some people say, no, it's just a variety or a dialect of English. And some people say, no, it's actually a language. And then Scottish Gaelic, which is completely unrelated. It's a Celtic language. Scottish Gaelic is spoken by about 57,000 people and it is what we call an endangered language. So even the term endangered is a metaphor. How can a language be endangered? And when people say we need to protect the language from obsolescence, well, what does that mean protect? Like with a shield and a sword, we're gonna fight to save the language? Like what does the word protection mean? It's a metaphor. So we use metaphors all the time. So one of the studies that I did is I thought, I'll go into a Gaelic medium education school where we have Gaelic teachers who are teaching kindergarten through 12th grade using the Gaelic language. They all speak Gaelic fluently and they are concerned about the preservation of the language. Even the word preservation is a metaphor. So I'm going to talk to them about the Gaelic language and see what metaphors they use to refer to the status of Gaelic. So a lot of metaphors came up. They talked about it being 
unhealth, the language is unhealthy. It needs revitalization. Um, they talked about it being in danger. They talked about it being moribund. They talked about not wanting it to go extinct. Well, the word extinct is used in the ecological world for species. So these metaphors, though not a one-to-one -one ratio, we can't say like, oh, a language dying is just like a species of an animal dying. It doesn't work that way because there are obviously differences. But when we start to think about metaphors, sometimes what happens is when I use a metaphor, my interlocutor, the person I'm talking with, will borrow other traits from the other field and unintentionally apply them. So for example, if I said, yeah, I don't want the Gaelic language to go extinct. Well, then you might think in your head, oh, extinct. Of course, this process doesn't all happen like verbally, but like subconsciously you're thinking, oh, extinct. I think of you know animals in the Amazon rainforest going extinct and when they do, it screws up the whole ecosystem. So if Scottish Gaelic as a language dies, it's gonna throw off the whole language balance of Scotland, the linguistic ecosystem. So the metaphors we use are very important because it can really shape the way others view the whole context. It can shape the way they frame the discussion, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. So in my research, most of the Gaelic speakers use the most common metaphors for uh, language, which are endangerment, extinction, moribund, obsolete, talking about language as a living organism. There was one metaphor that came up that was very interesting, and it was language as a possession. Usually, and this carries over, there's something called calking, or when somebody uses a phrase from one language into another language, they just translate it directly. And this happens a lot with English speakers who also speak Scottish Gaelic. Instead of saying, do you speak Gaelic? They'll say, do you have Gaelic? Oh, do you have English? So they talk about English as a possession. And that's interesting because then when you talk about losing a possession, does that mean you can find it again later? Could we, if the language dies or goes out of being spoken in a hundred years, could we say, oh, we found the language, we're gonna use it again. So again, that's kind of the idea of cognitive linguistics and metaphor theory, so. It really reminds us or reminds me of a lot of the conversations Ben and I have been having. Uh, there's a book, it was probably the first personal development book I ever read, but it's called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And this guy like put his life into studying spirituality and just Mexican culture. And his first agreement is be impeccable with your word. And his whole concept is that our words ultimately shape our realities and thus the realities of one another. So really his first like rule above all else is just be impeccable with the words that you're saying and the messages that you're bringing to life. And we've been thinking a lot about it in terms of like the show specifically, but also like just the cognitive element of how we're talking in our everyday lives, which the cognitive metaphor theory also speaks to. It's like being hyper intentional about the metaphors that we're drawing. Uh, I gave this example on a clubhouse that we met on, but the reframe that I have around fake it till you make it and how I realized that was like subconsciously instilling a belief that I wasn't there, that there was something to fake, right? But like that metaphor of faking it was thus implying in like a subconscious way that I wasn't at that point, but like reframing that to do it till you become it because that's a more, I guess, I find empowering kind of narrative or metaphor to be using. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit about not just what the importance of metaphors are, but like how to ultimately, or what questions to ask, how to shape a good metaphor, like what conscious decisions have to be made when we're making metaphors or when we're using language 
in a constructive and hopefully empowering slash beneficial manner? That's a good question. I don't know that I have a, a succinct answer on that. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned that book because it's literally the top book on my Amazon wish list because I heard about it yesterday on Clubhouse. I'd never heard of it. Um, but somebody had it actually embarrassingly, it was in a shoot your shot room. <laughs> 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 and I don't ever go to those with the intention of going up on stage or being shot at. I usually go to them for entertainment just because the, uh, the hosts and the moderators are pretty funny. But they were looking through somebody's bio and she, or a guy, and he had in there the four, what is it called? The four, the four agreements. Agreements, yeah. And they asked, which of the four agreements would you say is the most important? And he said, don't ever take it personally or something about not taking things personally. Mm -hmm. And he kind of went into a little depth on that, about how everything, it's not always about you. And so, and I thought, oh man, I got to get this book. So that's interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, in terms of being intentional about our words. So this is another area where I have cognitive dissonance or I have definitely this ambivalence when it comes to, and I know we've talked a little bit about this, but the idea of politically correct culture and woke culture there is a very thin line between being politically correct for the sake of trying to use it to charge down other people because they aren't informed on using the correct terms and actually trying to be instrumental in making the world a better place. And so when I hear people using politically correct language, for example, I guess this kind of goes into the same idea of what metaphors we use, what language we use, and how intentional are we. For example, in the disability world, they talk about uh, people first language. So rather than saying an autistic child, saying a child with autism, and that's a very intentional thing. I don't know that that necessarily creeps into metaphor theory, but the, the idea still holds true that we're trying to be intentional about elevating people and their stories. A classic example, and I don't know the exact study. I just remember hearing about this in passing. So everything I say, if there is no peer reviewed study on this, but the concept still holds true that I heard a long time ago that there was a study where there were two classrooms of children. One classroom was told to draw a picture, you know, six, seven-year-olds, draw a picture of a fireman. And then they told the other classroom, draw a picture of a firefighter. Well, in classroom B, a lot of the children drew pictures of their mom fighting fires. Well, this analogy or the story or anecdote, whether true or not, really resonated with me because my sister is a firefighter. And even though I grew up in a conservative evangelical home where most people would think, oh, there are very clear gender roles and women can't do much and women have to keep their place in the home, people would assume that was true of my upbringing. It was not at all. My sister was the first one to go to college. She's the CFO and vice president of a, of a company. Uh, my other sister is a assistant manager of a CVS. My other sister is a um, firefighter. She's a court administrator. So all the women in my family have never been under the impression they couldn't do whatever they wanted. You know, growing up, when I heard somebody say, oh, use the term firefighter, not fireman. I, when I was 12 or 13, I probably would have rolled my eyes and said, oh, here we go with you telling us how we can speak. And it's just because you want to impose this agenda. And it's like, no, this really is about reframing how we think about things. This goes into the concept of psychological frames or psychological frame theory, framing it in such a way that it's humans can do this, not men can do this, really does change the outcome. It makes people grow up thinking like, oh, this isn't like a man-specific domain, police officer rather than policeman. I have lots of friends who are female police officers. And if we just continued with that line of thinking where we have to use the term policeman all the time, a woman probably would think like, 
uh, this is a male-dominated, whether subconsciously or consciously, this is a male-dominated profession. That's not something I'm supposed to go into. Yeah, I don't know if that fully answers it because it's not really a metaphor. But yeah, I definitely think intentionality of words really is a thing and it's important. I'm learning a lot from this conversations, but I, I want to zoom in on the intentionality aspect real quick. You talked a lot about you took a lot of intentional initiatives. You highlighted the 10 words when you first were exposed to Spanish language and you created the initiative for yourself to learn 10 more. And when you are learning about sign languages, you created initiatives to learn more about that, right? Or even when you are taking notes for your Georgetown professor's classroom, you created an initiative when nobody told you to. It was not an agenda. You're not receiving points or extra credits. It was not being graded. But you took the intention of being initiative about, huh, what would it be like? You wanted to analyze it on a personal level. Like, where is that? Since we're talking about intentionalities and being intentional with your words, even for people who's like a polyglot like ourselves, we can't ascribe to the world that we live in outside of the language we know. And that's a fact, right? And so I think intentionality is a very important pillar. And before we continue on with uh, this theory, I just want to zoom in real quick about like, where do you think your that personal intentionalities and the initiative came from? Because you are very initiative and that's very evident through your entire storytelling this episode. Yeah, I don't, I think, um, Open-mindedness is probably a trait that is pretty common in my family. And I think my parents really did a lot to encourage that. Like I said, we, we grew up with not much money at all. Um, my parents actually, we found a deed to my house in South Jersey. Uh, when my parents bought it back in 1965, it was $1,548 for the entire house. Cool. And uh, <laughs> so my parents had no money grow when we were growing up but they still made every effort to try to spark curiosity and open-mindedness. So I remember when I was in eighth grade, we had a lot of birds in our backyard. We, like I said, we live in a farming community. We had a lot of birds and stuff. And I asked my dad, you know, what's this bird called? What's that bird called? And there were several he could identify, but several he couldn't. And I made the offhanded comment, I wish I knew what they, what they were called and I knew more about them. Well, that year for my birthday, they bought me a bird watching book that had all the birds. So they, they took that to the extent of, oh, you know, let's continue. He wants to go down this road of curiosity. Now, to be fair, I have no knowledge or ability in sciences whatsoever. <laughs> so it ended up being a dead end, but it was definitely a curiosity and they helped to it like push me down that road of curiosity. And I think all growing up, I, I experienced that. My parents would always push me things. So I love vocabulary. I remember in high school, ninth grade, I would get off the bus, I would come home and I would usually go to the dictionary and I'd give it to my mom and she would quiz me and I would try to memorize new words. I would memorize the dictionary, which is so geeky. But um, my mom would you know, quiz me. She would take the time out of her schedule to sit down and say, okay, well, what about this word? Do you know what this one means? And it was a fun exercise, but they really just pushed me to try to explore anything that I was interested in. They, they always encouraged that. And I think encouragement is definitely a factor, external encouragement. There's a lot of work in second language acquisition research on uh, personal initiative. And some, I don't know the science. I shouldn't say I don't know what that there is science. I don't know the science behind it. But I think when it comes to second language acquisition, there is a field of research on why some people gravitate personally to interests in languages and other people don't. So I don't know what the cause is, but there definitely is research in that field. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think even through your parents' stories, it almost feels or seems like a 
teaching through application rather a teaching through knowledge, like almost completely contrary to like what is taught in schools, um, which my parents also did an amazing job in. I went to a Montessori school, so it was that curiosity based kind of approach, which only now in hindsight do I kind of recognize that the curiosity was kind of built in that Montessori framework. So similarly, they're encouraging you to look at birds because you sparked that interest because you were out doing it, not like a book about birds saying memorize this, this, and this, and then go find them. But here's those and then tie in kind of the framework we talked about a little bit previously. And that makes me a bit curious for how you speculate on like the way education is going, both with that framework and also just the interrelated and collective approaches to education, whether that's Coursera or Mind Valley or Skillshare, just people from all over the world being able to observe and learn and interact in like a shared education space from a place of self-selection, from a place of curiosity, rather than a place of here you have to learn X, Y, and Z for the learning standard. So it is a bit speculative, but as someone in the education field, I'm wondering around your thoughts of just the forward-looking element of education. You know, we've seen such a change in just 2020, the whole remote ideas, people kind of seeing more holistically, looking through more lenses. So how do you think about the way that education is moving? Yeah, I was skeptical at first, in all honesty, because personally, I'm all about face-to-face interaction. Uh, I think learning is a dialogic process. I think that we nothing is in a vacuum. And when we teach things like, this is the objective, learn it, rather than let's have a discussion about it. So I think I mentioned Mikhail Bakhtin earlier. He very much said that um, learning is less about getting from point A to point B, and it's an iterative process where we just, I had a grad professor who so phenomenally put it when I told her I was doing this research about something, and she said, good research posits more questions than it answers. And I think that's such a beautiful way to look at it that sometimes we go into research saying, okay, I want to prove or disprove X, rather than saying, you know, there's value in the process. Like when I'm going through this, it makes me ask 25 questions that I didn't have on my radar before I started the research. And now I've got all these other venues of of exploration and curiosity. And likewise, so like I said, I was a little bit skeptical when I started seeing a lot of my friends that were doing all these online courses through Coursera and edX and things like that, especially the micro-credential programs, because I thought it's just another badge to put on your LinkedIn, but you're not really learning. But after talking to them, I realized this really is a wonderful way for people to explore areas of personal interest. And so I am 100% on board. Um, I think it's great. I do wish there were more interpersonal interaction in some of these courses, but in terms of accessibility, I just think, man, like there are people all over the world in cultures that are the developing world that don't have access to Harvard. They don't have access to travel to Oxford. They don't have access. They don't have the financial means. They don't have the academic background and credentials to get them into these Ivy League schools. But now they can take a class from on psychology from a Harvard professor and get the same amount of value without leaving their homes all from their cell phone, which most people in the developing world have now. <laughs> a lot of people do. And so I just think it's taking the World Wide Web to a different level. I remember when the Internet was first coming of age. Embarrassing because now I'm telling my age. <laughs> in my physics class, I sat next to Sean McGee in 11th grade in physics class at Bridgeton High School with Mr. McGee. And Mr. McGee told us that one day, because we had computers, we did have computers for Oregon Trail and stuff like that. This is back in 1996, 97. 
But Mr. McGee told us, he said, you know, one day, he said, you see this TV screen up here that you watch Channel One News on this morning? We said, yeah. And he said, one day you're going to be watching the news from your computer. And Sean McGee and I looked at each other and we just rolled our eyes. Like this guy, like he's thinking in the realm of the Jetsons. Like, come on now. Like in all honesty, nobody's going to do that. And then when the internet really started to take off in the late 90s, early 2000s, I remember people saying, this is so wonderful because knowledge is going to spread throughout the world and people are going to be able to learn left and right. And then it turned into like, oh, this is where people go to get on Facebook and look at porn. And so it was kind of, it was kind of like, well, that flopped. And so now to hear this revival of talks about, you know, web-based learning and being able to use the internet and being able to use all these sources and sites to actually learn, I just think is invaluable. And it's so awesome that so many people are investing time, money, and effort into making these things happen. So yeah, I love it. There are lots of clubhouse rooms there about it that I've been in and it's just fascinating to see. It's almost like Montessori in digital form. <laughs> yeah, 1000%. And I think it also speaks to like, there's almost a necessity of application on the other side, because I'm as guilty as the next of like reading 10 books, and then not really like implementing the things from those books, or even like, really, I think true learning comes from that application, or even talking about the conversations. I really love the analogy that you pointed out that your co-teacher or faculty member told you about good research just introduces new questions and as you were saying that I almost thought that I feel like that's what good conversation does it just creates new questions I think in the last two hours that we've been speaking together I don't think we've settled on any real answers about anything at all but like there's so many new questions I have to think about you know and I hope that's really the whole ethos and the mission of discover more it's like seeing new ways of thinking things that then like you said like sprout out new ways of thinking or new like thought tunnels to run down and like see what's down that way but really that analogy that you gave i just really resonate with and kind of want to point out for the listeners it's like we're not doing conversation we're not doing research we're not really doing anything in life for like specific answers but just like more questions or like new approaches at the end of the day sure like math and accounting that i'm in like there are necessary <laughs> answers to certain things but a lot of the more qualitative feel to me just like an ongoing evolution of questions rather than answers themselves yeah, I was in a clubhouse room the other day where some woman shared this statement and I wrote it down. I wanted to put it in my bio because it was like, man, this is so true. She said, one man's rabbit hole is another man's sermon. And I thought, man, so many times I've been at conferences where I go into a session to learn something and somebody makes a sidebar comment and it just triggers this like investigative process where I start like researching that field or like I, they make a five minute discussion about something that's not related necessarily to the topic. And I'm almost embarrassed when I leave and somebody's like, oh, what'd you learn in that session? And it's like, do I want to tell them the thing that I really learned? Because it wasn't about the topic, but it's so true that it's like, you know, it really does just open up new windows and ways of thinking. And I think that's like the power of collectiveness because like for the vastness and the intellectual diversity and the thought diversities that we've been preaching on this show for so long, it's very seldom in life that you're going to bring up a new idea that someone else haven't thought about it before. Maybe it's in different culture, maybe it's different language, maybe there's different schools of thinking. But if you zoom out and look at the humanity and the evolutions of like the cultural evolutions of humans as a whole, there's so many universal truth. And there's so many similarities from what I've thought about and what someone else came up with. And but that collective impact and power of this, you know, collective consciousness, I know some people are allergic to that 
term, it really speaks volume through this conversation. It's like, how often do we come up with an idea that's uniquely unique to us? It's probably a reframe or reflections or rewarding of someone else's idea from maybe 100 years ago, 1000 years ago, right? And that's the reason why I'm so fascinated in philosophy, because philosophy is the study of human nature. And then <clears throat> by studying of human nature, a lot of their ideologies and belief systems surface. And I think the power of asking question is so underrated because for us to ask a constructive and productive question, like you talked about, Jack, throughout this conversation, that you must challenge your own belief system. Because to have that curiosity, you must challenge your own belief to ask that question because without that, you wouldn't be asking the question to begin with. You know, so I do think that like the go back to, you know, you talked about in your school where you were brought up in the uh, Socratic method. I don't know if you apply Socratic method in your own teaching. And obviously Socratic method is ubiquitously applied through most law school system nowadays in the U.S. at least. Uh, but like, could you like unpack the Socratic method real quick for the listeners and like how that has fundamentally shaped, I guess, some of the students that you've encountered throughout your life and even in your own life? Because I think asking questions sounds easy and it's almost like a full circle because we did talk about this briefly in the beginning. But like, what does that truly mean, asking questions? Because it sounds very easy, but I think there's a lot of really, really important wisdom packed into that. Just ask more questions. Sure. So yeah, Socratic method in general is really just that, just asking questions. And when you get to a solution for that or an answer to that question makes you ask new questions. In my own teaching ways that I've used it are, for example, um, when I taught K-12, we would sometimes read short stories, for example. So for example, I taught, I'll give you a case in point example. I taught a course on world studies to seventh graders. We were talking about Nigeria, Africa. And so I had my students read a work by Chinua Achebe, I mentioned earlier, called The Dead Man's Path. And The Dead Man's Path, in short, it is um, a story about colonialism. It's about a uh, school that was founded by English people in Nigeria. And the new headmaster of the school and his wife were going to go teach at the school and work at the school. And they were so excited and they thought we're going to bring you know, these wonderful English values, and we're going to teach these Nigerians how to be civilized and polite people. And they go to the school, and the uh, headmaster says, oh, what is this path going through the school property? Like, this just looks disgusting. We need to stop people from walking on this path. And he doesn't consult the locals to find out why there's a path. And, of course, in reality, the path is because the locals believe that that path, the dead man's path, where the title gets its name, is where babies, their spirits come through that path to be born and the dead, their spirits go through that path to die. And so the headmaster has no idea why. He doesn't know the context. He doesn't bother asking questions. He just says, we can't have this. And so he puts up a, a rail or a, a fence around the property so that the, the locals can't walk down that path. And just about that time is when a big donor is going to come and assess the school and see whether or not it's worthy of money, I think is the situation. I could be wrong. And when he builds the fence overnight, the locals destroy the fence because it's sacrilegious to them. This path would be blocked off. And then the donor comes the next day and says, I'm not going to give the school any money. I'm not going to help the school because there's tribal warfare going on. And it's just really bad situation. And so that story highlights the idea that, number one, the disruptiveness of culture from colonialism, and also just the idea that we really need to get out of our own matrix. We really need to assess situations and say, who are all the stakeholders involved? So 
one of the exercises that I did when I was teaching this to my seventh graders, I taught, I did an integrative unit where to learn about different countries, we were literally learning about how do they learn math? What is the literature? What is the art from this region? So it was very integrated. We were pulling in science, math, history, geography, uh, literature, everything in together. And so in that process, um, these were seventh graders and I was just blown away. I borrowed a lesson plan from a, a peer of mine in my master's program, Shantiria Mack, who is currently working on her doctorate at Florida International University on multicultural education. But I borrowed this lesson plan from her and I implemented it with my students. And I it had several questions that I asked, like who are some of the stakeholders that he could have asked? What are some of the things that he could have done differently? And we did what's called a, a literature circle, or sometimes it's called a Socratic circle. And so what I did is I divide the students into a couple groups, maybe three groups, and with five to seven students per group, and they each took on a role. So they democratically decided who would take each role. So one student was the artistic adventurer, and their job was to do an artistic rendering, whatever that looked like, of the story, Dead Man's Path. Another student was supposed to be in, was in charge of finding five words from the story that they thought were either meaningful or new words that they hadn't heard before or something that they thought that the rest of the class should focus on, five words they should highlight from the story. So they each had a different role. And in that process, at the end, they each kind of shared and some of them had similar words and stuff, but the amount of wisdom that came out of these seventh graders' mouths from having these discussions, like which words do you think I should put include? Oh, I think this word was important. Oh, what should I draw a picture of? Should I draw a picture of the path or should I draw a picture of the headmaster's wife because she looks typically British? Should I draw a picture of the witch doctor? So they're having these discussions, but even apart from that, Socratically, they're asking questions about what happened in the story? What could be done differently? Well, why would that way be better? Is that just my own perspective of why that would be better? You know, I said that they should consult so-and-so. Well, should they also consult the witch doctor? Well, we're Christians and we don't believe in witchcraft, so should they even be having conversations with the witch doctor? Well, even though we don't agree with them, doesn't mean we can't have conversations with them. And they're having these super, like I said, Socratic discussions where they're asking questions about, does this go against what I believe? But if I do this, don't I also have to do this? But does that mean that people will think this about me? Just super deep discussions, all from asking questions. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on in that lesson. And it was one of the most powerful. And like I said, the, the amount of wisdom from seventh graders, I just thought, man, I wish I could take all of their parents and bring them in and say, would you please listen to Addie Bradford for 10 minutes and then go back into your workplace? Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the power of Socratic thinking and asking questions. I love that example on so many levels. Like I wish I was doing exercises like that in my childhood schooling. It just seems so productive from the conversational element, the teamwork element. One really interesting thing from that that stood out to me, it's each specific group had a specific lens to be looking through which I think almost can be zoomed out into just like the way we look at problems itself. Like, you know, using public health for an example, it's on front of mind for me, but having like in your example, looking for the drawing a picture and some people are looking for words, I think in like idea or a issue as complex and wide ranging as public health, some people can look at the economics, some can look at the food system, but really by like zooming in and narrowing the focus, you can ask more intentional questions rather than like you posing the question, what did you guys think of this story? Like the attributes or adjectives of a specific character, but by almost like giving a specific mission or a specific lens to look for something specific, you can ultimately draw out better answers. It's almost being hyper intentional with the focus, I suppose, 
which I just think is so valuable. And I would encourage, like, I'm definitely going to unpack that a little bit of zooming in a little bit on more grand issues and then trying to extract those more specific lessons in a more macro sense. So I totally appreciate you sharing yet again, stories, stories ringing louder than just words. Yeah, absolutely. It does have so many, um, repercussions are so many practical, it has so much practical value for so many different fields. And that's why I love using stuff like that. I haven't used that specific uh, for my critical thinking class, but I've thought about using something similar because it's good for students to realize, although we do a lot of critical media literacy, all of them are from different fields. So I've got computer science majors, I've got theater majors, I've got all these students in my class and they all need to make practical applications of what we do in that critical thinking class and realize, like you said, like I can use this in my computer science field to say, okay, I want to hone in on this one specific thing. How can I you know, focus on that one niche area? So I talked about the classical Christian school I taught at, and I said that sometimes I wanted to be very careful uh, in case anybody who teaches in that background doesn't think I'm saying all classical Christian education is white supremacy. Um, the school that I taught at definitely did not embody that. I was really fortunate that all of my colleagues at the classical Christian school I taught at had a similar vision. Because it was a small school, we were able to do so many things out of the box, and it was just such a creative environment. And two of my colleagues, which have been the most instrumental and influential people in my life literally ever, and I can explain more of that later, but they're a married couple that I, I taught with, and we did a lot of units together where at the beginning of the school year, we said, you know what, let's bring the whole high school together. And for the first three weeks of the semester, we are not going to do any actual classes. We're just going to do integrative problem-based lessons. So one year it was back, and I don't know how old y'all are, if you remember the Darfur crisis in Africa, there was a situation of Darfur, which is in Northern Africa, the Sudan area. The background I'll give very brief. Um, there was a genocide going on. Two million people were killed. There were people, there was tribal warfare, people fighting to look for land, look for water, and people were fleeing the area. So within that, we basically, the first day of school, we told all of our high school students, here is the gist of the problem. We're going to give you a day where your only job, or two days, is just to explore, just to find out what is the problem, what's going on, how much can you understand? And so they were all kind of in their own little zones with small groups around computers, looking at stuff. We had stuff printed off. We had magazines. So they're all kind of going through their own spiel and having discussions about it. So after they did that, we said, okay, we now understand the problem. What can you, you know, 30 students from Anderson, South Carolina, what can you do about the problem? Is there anything you can do to solve it? So then they spent half a day just coming up with possible solutions. Like, what can we do? What can our role be in solving this problem? They said, you know, we didn't know about this. We asked our parents at dinner last night. They'd never heard of this problem. And apparently it's a big problem. Two million people dead. And we just are now hearing about it. So we want to hold a community-wide forum where we discuss this problem with the community so the community can know something. So we can be educational in our approach, but we also have decided we want to raise money. So we said, okay, are you just gonna mail over, raise a hundred bucks and mail it to Darfur? Obviously that's not gonna work, what are you gonna do? So they started investigating what, what uh, organizations and nonprofits are doing things over there, which ones are reputable. So they're having to dig deeper and think critically about, you can't just send it to any place. You know, Some of these places aren't funneling money correctly. So they did their research. So then they said, we want to hold this forum. So we said, okay, well, to give a forum, who's going to speak? Are you going to just present a PowerPoint? So we got experts to come in. We got a professor who was 
lived during the Rwanda, the genocide in Rwanda. He was a refugee and he's a professor at Clemson University. He came and talked to the kids about what it was like living during genocide. Uh, we got Dr. Camille Lewis, who's a professor at Furman University. She deals with rhetoric and she came and talked to the students, let them ask her questions about what's the best way to present the material. We know what the problem is. How do we get this? How do we disseminate this to the public? What are the best rhetorical devices? All of us teachers kind of poked and prodded from our own angles. So as a geography professor, I'm asking questions about physical geography. I'm asking questions about the region. Um, the history professor is asking, you know, what's the history of this region? Are there other wars that have happened in this area? Have other people fought for this land? Um, so we're all kind of coming at it from our own angle. The science teacher is asking, you know, why can't they just, one of the students said, well, can't they just take the sand from the desert and make glass and that will get the money? So she's asking questions about what types of sand are there? Do all types of sand, can all of them be used for making glass or just silica sand? What kind of sand is in the region? So it was a very multi-dimensional approach to the problem. Like I said, we got all sorts of experts that would help us facilitate and the students ended up presenting to the community. They got some of the parents to make cheesecake and they had several people from the community unrelated to the school come to the school, listen to them present about it, donate money. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. Because I had one student whose dad was the, uh, he ran the conference, the, the Madrid Conference Center at Clemson University. And he said, look, I'm the manager and I'm going to let you use the conference center. Sorry, I'm going to let you use the conference center to present on this topic. And several of our students, when we told them this, we said, you know, uh, Dr. Martin is going to let us use the conference center. Do you want to redo this on a larger scale to all of Clemson University and potentially uh, people from the community of Clemson? And I'll never forget, I had three or four students break down, break down crying and saying, I don't think I can do this again. Emotionally, I was not prepared for what was going on in Darfur, and I don't think I can talk to another audience about it. It was important. I'm glad we did it, but I don't think I could do this large scale. I think people need to hear it, but they ended up opting out of it, and the reason wasn't laziness. The reason was they were touched so emotionally, and when you have a lesson where students are crying because of empathy for millions of people killed in the world... It's like, man, if I, I can't recreate this, I can't recreate this setting, I can't recreate this lesson. We did that for my last four or five years of teaching. We did that at the beginning of each semester because it was such a profitable experience for our students. We did one the next year on the healthcare crisis. These integrative units that we did that are problem-based were just so powerful and probably the best learning experiences they had. And also as a teacher, some of the best learning experiences I had to see how students really are curious and they do want to drive. It's just a matter of facilitating them and using your resource as well. So, sorry. <laughs> Talk about a rabbit trail. No. Um, yeah. Once again, your level of vulnerability and honesty is so evident and we truly appreciate you sharing. And yeah, that almost brought a tear up in my eyes because I definitely learned more from my students than I taught them. Right. I might have instilled some specific subjective expertise, quote unquote, but they've taught me the wisdom of life. We talked about this with our previous guest, Jess. She was voted as Mainline's 15 under 30. And she talks about how many powerful youth and powerful young adults that were on the list with her. And I think in today's day and age, especially with millennials, starting from millennials, a lot of youth is or a lot of young adults' voices weren't just siloed. They were silenced entirely because they're like, oh, what do you know? You're young. What do you know? Right. But just hearing about your stories and from this episode, like we should never undermine or under 
estimate anyone's voices, regardless of your background, regardless of your age. And these are such powerful lessons that I know can truly, that are applicable to everyone's life. And I think I'd like to encourage the listeners using this opportunity that like maybe you have undermined or dismissed some of your friends' opinions or maybe your cousins or some people who are younger than you are and like to be critical, right? Critical thinking and be more metacognitive about your assumptions and your judgments. Like, why do you believe that? Like, why do you think their voices don't matter? Is it their age? Is it your self-insecurity? Is it your self-esteem? Like, what's the issue? So I really appreciate you sharing what you did and it's super powerful. And speaking of, you talked about those two faculty professors. You said that they were literally one of the most influential figures in your life, period. And I reckon another irreplaceably important with such paramount is your father. I'm sure your father reigns on top as one of the most influential figures in your life. And the level of empathy, the level of self-awareness, the level of curiosities that you've cultivated throughout your life, you talked about your parents were important factors and pillars. And we touched briefly about the conditions in the stage four lung cancer your dad was battling with. And I told you that we, we would zoom in back on that conversations. And since we were talking about how influential some of these faculty members were in your life, I'd like to take a soft pivot into a more personal lens, uh, based on however much you want to share, that's entirely up to you, of course, but to talk about some of the influences your, your father carried for you and, you know, just tell us a little bit more about how impactful that moment was in terms of, you know, being there with your father or just that chapter of your life where your dad was going through such difficult time and eventually, you know, passing away. Yeah, so my father, um, he grew up in New Jersey and he uh, was also poor growing up. And he went into the military, which is kind of the only option for a lot of people of his generation, Vietnam War time. And he ended up after a few different assignments in a few different locations, he ended up in Scotland, which is where he met my mom. He was working up to 70 hours a week. So kindergarten, first, second, and third grade, I went to a Christian school. And then I'll never forget, my parents used to take us for picnics fairly often. And they took us to a picnic and my dad said, you know, your mom and I have talked about it. Your mom's not a citizen of the United States. So she's very limited in how many hours she can work. But he said, financially, we're getting to the point where we don't know if we can afford to keep you in the Christian school. But if you and your sister really don't think you can go to the public school, if that's not an option for you, your mom said that she can, she's legally allowed to work 15 hours a week. We will get her a job and she will work to pay for the, the bills if you really don't think you can transfer and I'll even take on more hours. And at that point he was working 70 hours a week between the glass factory and my cousin owned a mailing service and he was working there in the evenings and he would take us with him. And my sister and I were like, we don't really care. We had friends at the public school. It was like a quarter of a mile from our house. And I remember the selling point oddly was my, my dad said, and they've got skate parties where they all go roller skating. And I was like, oh, I'm in. Like forget the Christian school. I want this public school skating party. That was the clicker for me. So my dad was always looking out for the benefit of us kids. And that was super powerful. Um, when he did pass, just kind of fast forwarding, when he did pass, I was talking to my sister. I was crying in my bedroom. And my sister, Deneen, she talked about how she was the second oldest. and so She was the first to go to college. And she talked about how in high school, one of her math teachers said, you need to go to college. You need to major in math. And she said, well, that's not what our family does. We don't do college. And he said, no, no but you, you need to. Like you are gifted in math and you definitely need to go to college and I'm going to help you. So she told my dad 
And of course, we had no idea anything about colleges. Most first-gen students are in the same boat. We had no concept what to expect. And so um, she wanted to go to Eastern University, which is not far from Philadelphia. It's a Christian college. And uh, so she wanted to go to Eastern. So she wanted to look at it. So she told my dad, you know, I talked to my teacher and he said I should look into Eastern. And he said, well, I'll see if I can, you know, borrow some money from Pop-Up, some gas money so we can drive up there. So he didn't even have enough money for tuition, gas money, let alone tuition. So he ended up taking her up there. She got the application. There was an application fee. And my dad said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can work some extra hours this week to pay for your application fee. And so just all of those things, thinking my dad was broke, he had no concept, but he was whatever it took to make us succeed, he was willing to do. And so that was very powerful um, and important. Growing up, I remember when I went to college, my dad's company had this idea of a scholarship that they offered some of the employees' children. It was $550, so it wasn't much, especially in today's terms, but uh, even back then it wasn't much. It was a short application. My brother and I were both in college at the same time, and we got this $550. And of course, my parents always taught us if you get any gift, no matter how big or small, you always send a thank you note. So my brother and I sent thank you notes to the company for the $550, and that was it. Well, when I was home uh, one time, my dad uh, sat down at the table and he said, something happened at work today. And I said, what happened? He started crying. My dad wasn't super emotive, but sometimes he would get emotional and he started crying. And I said, what? And he said, my boss, who I didn't even know, knew my name. It's a big company, but he called me into his office today. and I was really nervous. And I asked him what was up. And he said, you know, we gave out 30 scholarships, this $550. And he said, we got two thank you notes and they were both from your sons. And he said, so I'm just so proud of you. And looking back, I think I'm proud of him for instilling that in us, for making us think that was an important thing and that was you know, virtuous and that was important to do. But just, he was always proud of us growing up. And so that was very important for me. Um, my dissertation was dedicated to my, my parents. Like I said, and I mentioned earlier, they just always pushed all of us kids to go in whatever direction we wanted to go, they fully supported. And so I hear some of my students when I ask them, you know, as an advisor, what, what do you want to major in? And they tell me, uh, what do I want to major in? Or what do my parents want me to major in? Oh, uh, my parents told me I have to major in business, but I really like art. And I'm sure every family has their reasoning, so I don't want to judge parents, but I'm just grateful that my parents didn't push me in a direction that wasn't natural. They pushed me to be whatever the best me looked like. Um, and so I would definitely encourage, I'm not a parent, but I would encourage any parents to do the same, to just help your children be the best them that they can be. Um, and that's one of the things that my, my parents definitely have done over the years. Yeah, that's an amazing story, man. We appreciate you sharing as always. Like, I think it's clear that you embody a lot of those lessons, whether it's the gratitude or the empathy, but from the lessons that you learned as a kid growing up and then kind of bringing those forward into your students. So a bit in that ethos of the messages you want to, you know, leave behind or instill in generations prior. I think we've talked a lot about it throughout the past two hours, but really, I guess, an intentional question of if you had a mentorship program, what kind of ideals or advice would you like to leave people with? Maybe it's specifically geared around learning, maybe more on a life lens. So one of the fields that I am engaged in is intercultural competency. And some of the ideas of intercultural competency to me are really just general competency, just dealing with people. And so one of the first questions you ask in intercultural competency is when you see an action from someone, from anyone, rather than putting your own cognitive lens over that situation, stopping and asking yourself, 
is there something from their cultural background that could be causing this? Could this be a miscommunication? So if I have a student who is doing something in my classroom that I think is unruly, rather than saying you're being unruly, stopping and asking myself, is that maybe not culturally what's happening? Is there something they're doing that, that I could be misperceiving? So that's kind of the short version of what I'll say. And the idea is just, and this goes back to, I think it all kind of ties together in terms of empathy and respect. And um, the two mentors I mentioned that I had earlier, when I was in college and I was breaking out of the fundamentalist realm and I was in my senior year of college and there were just so many things that I was hearing that, I, like I said, the music thing that I was like, I don't agree with this. And I thought, man, am I a heretic for believing a lot of these things? Like, am I really off the rails with a lot of my beliefs? And my friends, Court and Laurie, they were in graduate school and Court was working his doctorate in Bible. Laurie was working, I think she'd done her master's in Bible. They were best friends with my brother. And I thought, you know what? My brother's in his own field and I don't want to bother him. I'm going to ask them if I can talk to them about my beliefs, about where I'm at right now, theologically and spiritually. And so I asked them, I saw them on campus. I said, can I come talk to you all? They were a married couple. I said, can I come talk to you all sometime? And they said, yeah, come over Friday night for brownies and coffee and we'll talk about things. So I'll never forget. And I share this story often. I sat on their sofa and for about 20 minutes, I did just like I was just doing now. I teared up and I ended up crying and I poured out my heart. And I said, these are all the things I believe. And I think I'm a heretic and blah, blah, blah. Well, when I was done, they looked at each other and they said, no, you're not a heretic. There are a whole bunch of people that believe like you. They're actually called Presbyterians, which now is comical. I laugh. But at the time, I didn't know much about that realm. And they said, no, in fact, we're on the same page as you. And we're, we're leaving next year to go work at this classical Christian school. Um, and a lot of people there have the same worldview, the same theology. Well, over the years, they were my mentors. Um, not because, and even to this day, not because we always saw eye to eye, but because they were always a safe place where I could throw my ideas at them and they didn't judge. They would stop and say, what is his background? What is his lens and what's going on here? They really did live out unconditional love and they do live out unconditional love. So when I graduated from college, I went on, I, I worked for a finance firm. I translated documents. I interpreted I did a lot of that. And then they called and said, hey, our school has an opening for a Spanish teacher. Would you be willing to come teach? And they're the ones that I worked with. Well, at some point in there, I didn't have health insurance. Speaking of the health insurance and the health crisis, uh, I didn't have health insurance. So my stomach problems started to act up and I went in the hospital and I ended up with $111,000 of medical debt with no insurance. And so it was consolidated and I was paying $516 a month. And I did that for the course of seven years until I paid it off. But when I started teaching at that classical school, I started off making $14,000 a year. So clearly that's not enough to pay off $516 a month and have expenses, you know, your living expenses taken care of. Well, Court and Laurie sat down with me and they said, hey, we know about your medical situation and we know you don't make much at this school. We have two spare bedrooms. Come live with us, rent free, no strings attached for as long as you need until you can pay down your debt. Just live here for free. Not once in the two or three years that I lived there did I ever feel like I had to pull my own weight. Did I feel like there were strings attached and I, you know, you're living with us, so you should do X. I felt completely autonomous. I felt like I had full agency as an adult living in their house. I lived with them for three years rent free and then finally was on my feet, paid off my debt and moved on. After that, they took in a mother and I think nine of her children and two of their cats. Uh, who were without a place to stay and 
and they said, oh, we've got two spare bedrooms. You're coming to stay with us for free. No strings attached. You're a fully autonomous adult. Do what you need to do, but you've got a free place to stay. Uh, some of our past students were kicked out of their homes and they were like, okay, you're coming to stay with us. You've got a free place to stay. There were never strings attached. They lived, they practiced what they preached, but um, I've kind of taken a lot of my personal mentorship from them in the idea of when people have come to me with problems or struggles, just recognizing A, there's more to the story, background, and B, these are adults that I have no right to tell them exactly what and how they should do. They're autonomous adults who have agency and also just not judging. And they are, like I mentioned, they're my safe space where there are times in my life where I've had, you know, existential crises where I'm deep into a certain philosophy and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this conflicts with this and I don't know what to think. And I go to them and they're like, you don't have to have everything solved. You don't have to have everything figured out. Life is a constant journey. You're gonna be on some branch roads that don't make sense. You'll figure it out. You'll come back around. So just giving people space and autonomy, I would say, are two important life lessons that I've learned from them. And I think they've kind of funneled into my own mentorship, letting people process and being okay with ambiguity. That's awesome, man. The idea that really comes up for me that I've been thinking a lot about is healing occurs through safe relationship. And I think that applies to our whole conversation, specifically the story that you just shared, I'm sure, in and outside of the classroom. And that's really another one of the big missions that we have here is creating safe relationships where people can chat without judgment, without agenda, and really just kind of share openly through things of, like, we've talked about a wide array of things today. And, like, I think there's been, you know comedy on both sides, laughter, non-judgment, just like mutual benefit and hopefully benefit for the listeners. But really that ethos of healing through safe relationship, I think is so valuable and really clearly I'm sensing the ethos that you bring forward into your students as well. hundred percent. Yeah. I definitely think safe relationships are the way to go. Yeah. There's so much there. And I know you losing your father to lung cancer is not the only tragedy you've experienced. And I know you've also experienced a handful of other uh, tragedies throughout your lives. And you just talked about it's very important to have support system and process your things. And everyone have different avenues and vehicles to do that. But for the sake of listeners, since we do like specifics on this topic and you're so well versed in your experiences and you're such a powerful uh, storyteller, uh, would you be able to share some of the toolkits? that maybe you've cultivated or you've even utilized during your own healing process. Um, because uh, you speak with so much compassion, you speak with so much fluidity, you speak with so much power. And we would love to translate that in a more tangible level for some of the listeners. Sure. So I definitely have seen my own growth over the years. I think a lot of times we, obviously you don't see your growth when it's happening, but you start to notice different things in the end. So when I was first out of college, I was living with my, I had a roommate and as I said, I like to take baths. And uh, one day I was taking a bath and I got a phone call and it was from an old friend. And I, I answered the phone call and the phone call was basically him telling me he, he worked for the ambulance service and he had heard on the scanner that there was a tragedy and he wanted to ask if it was true. Now, he probably could have been a little bit uh, more careful in how he approached it, but he basically told me that he had heard that my nephew had shot himself. In that moment, I fight or flight mode, I reacted very, uh, I wouldn't even say unusually. Um, I, I jumped out of the bed, buck naked, ran into the living room where my roommate 
uh, his brother and three of his friends from college were watching a football game and I was bug naked, <laughs> uh, having a panic attack. Um, I literally hyperventilated. I locked myself in my room. My roommate had to come and take the, uh, uh, pick the lock to get in to get me a paper bag and get me dressed. My brother, who was living here at the time, was called by my parents and told, you know, Jake has taken his own life. When you're able to get yourself together, give yourself some time, and then you and Sue, that's my brother Bill's wife, uh, when you're able, could you please drive over to Jack's house, give him the story, give him the news, and make sure he's safe? Well, of course, that got derailed when I got that sidebar phone call that wasn't expected. So my brother did come over, and he said, you know, we need to get you ready. We need to, we're going to go back home. We need to figure this out. And so he said, okay, I remember sitting on the edge of the bed, and he said, okay, here's what we need. We're going to go back home. You need a suit. So I said, okay. So I walked into my walk-in closet and I came out and he said, okay, not a bathing suit. Uh, I had swim drunks and he's like, okay, not that kind of suit. How about you sit on the bed and I'll sort this out. So he packed everything for me. I remember getting in the van and we started to pull out of the parking lot of my apartment complex to drive back the 12 hours, 11 hours to New Jersey. And I said, stop, stop. I forgot something. He said, okay. So he pulled back in. I ran upstairs and I came down the stairs and I had tied laundry detergent for some reason I thought that was essential to have on our trip back to New Jersey so my brain was not in a good space like I said it was just nothing was uh no cylinders were firing properly so that ended up being a very obviously it was a tragic situation and um I got home and if it weren't for my siblings I don't know how or if I would have been able to get through I struggled with depression after that for several years um, I had talked to my my nephew that morning he had just started Paxil, which was a uh, common uh, antidepressant. And he was voted, I mean, he was most popular in his school. He had a beautiful girlfriend. He was uh, being scouted for baseball, uh, had everything seemingly going for him or ostensibly going for him. And so it really didn't make sense why he took his life. And it turns out that Paxil, they had determined now it has a black box warning on it triggered many young people who were very young adolescents it triggered them to commit suicide it was a common story so uh there's now a black box warning but um it was a very tragic situation it obviously affects i think about it all the time but for the first few years it really did cause me to deal with depression and um but yeah my support system was definitely my siblings so fast forward to when my dad passed away and when my father was first diagnosed, I called a family meeting. And so all my siblings sat around and we just said, okay, here are the options. What do we want to do? Do we want to do clinical trials? This is ultimately dad's decision, but he said he wants us to discuss it. Uh, and so we asked, do you want to do a clinical trial? Do you want to go through with chemo? Do you want to just let it happen? We need to line up your finances. We've got a lot of things to discuss. And just thinking, man, it's only, it hasn't been that long, but just the difference in how I handled the first situation versus the second. Obviously, they're completely different forms of death. I was a completely different age. There are lots of factors, but um, my family immediately pulled together. So my sister, Dean, said, you know what? I work in the finance field. I'll take over finances. I can help with all of that. My sister, Marion, said, I can deal with this. I said, oh, I can help investigate. I do research. I'm going to look into all the clinical trials that are available. My sister, Nancy, said, I've got a car. I live a mile away. I'm going to be taking you to every appointment. So we just, as a family pulled together as a network. We were all there all the time. Uh, even up until my father's death, it was, um, I don't know that we can say that a death is beautiful, but my father was with it and fully functioning all the way up until the end. He was obviously very weak. He didn't talk much the last several weeks, but he was even able to drive. 
and I was in grad school in DC, a couple out, two or three hours south. And I got a phone call from my sister and she said, I think you need to come home. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I think, you know, dad's ready to go home. So I said, okay. So I drove home. I said, what's going on? I just talked to him yesterday. Our conversations were brief because he had struggles breathing from the mesothelioma. And I said, what's going on? And my mom said he was driving yesterday. He walked upstairs to go to bed this morning. I went upstairs and he said, I'm ready to go home. And she said, what do you mean? He said, I'm ready to go home. I, I don't, I'm not going to get out of bed. I don't think I can walk down the stairs. I think I'm ready to go home. So call the boys. Well, my brother is a missionary in South Africa in Cape Town. And so they called him. Obviously, it's a lot longer for him to come over. Uh, they called me and I came up. And so we called in a hospice and uh, they talk, took him downstairs to the living room, got a bed set up for him down there where we were all able to be there. And um, he laid in bed and a couple times he, he motioned that he wanted to sit up so he could take a deep breath um, or cough. And one of those times after a few hours, he coughed and there was blood on the handkerchief. And so I immediately ran upstairs and I contacted, I've been in touch with the Mesothelioma Research Foundation. The woman who's in charge of that, her name's Mary Hestorfer, and she was amazing every step of the way. I called her and I said, my dad just coughed up blood. What do we expect next? And so she put me in touch with a few people. I talked to some other people whose family had died from mesothelioma and they said, you know, in the next couple hours, he's going to do what's called the death rattle, where you're going to hear some rasp, you know, rattling around of his voice. He's going to be struggling with breath for a while. You know, this is going to be a prolonged process. Prepare yourself. And so I was kind of prepared for that. So I went back downstairs and I thought, do I share this with my family? Do I just let, let him live it out? Do I scare them? I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. So I went back downstairs and about 15 minutes later, my dad asked to sit up again. He coughed again. And just intuitively all of my siblings just kind of knew to go around to this bed. And I held his left hand and laid in the bed with him. My mom held his right hand and the rest of us siblings all kind of formed a chain. And uh, my brother wasn't able to be home yet. So he wasn't able to be there, but I just said, dad, I know your biggest concern right now is mom. You guys have been married for 50 years and you've held out this long, longer than is average for what you were supposed to live with this kind of cancer. Uh, he lived 18 months, which was a lot longer than was expected. And I said, I know that you've been holding out for mom. And I just want to assure you that mom is taken care of. All of us kids are going to make sure that she has everything she needs and she will be taken care of. And I said, you know that we love you and we will make sure that everything's going to be okay. And he took a deep breath and let out and he was gone. So it wasn't prolonged. We were all holding his hand. And then my sister, Marion, my nephew's mother said, he's now with Jake. And it was just the most beautiful way to see a life end, to know that he was there with most of his children and for us to be encouraged to know that he's now with my nephew. And so, yeah. So again, um, I think that typifies the fact that my support system was all there. All of my siblings, after he passed away, we've all been there for each other. There are times that I, I think I talk to all of my siblings and my mom literally at least once a day. And I don't think that's ever been broken even when I've lived abroad. I talked uh, just yesterday, my brother-in-law actually just had open heart surgery a couple days ago. And all of my siblings and my mom were on a, a chain call to talk to each other, to give updates and stuff. And so, again, I'm just so thankful that I have four siblings and a mother that is still alive that uh, we do all support each other. So, Yeah, I, I turned up a little bit. Um, the pillars of family is so deeply ingrained in Asian culture. 
And I can just like through your story, even though my both my parents are alive, uh, but I just very recently went through some family emergencies without going to details. Um, and then my girlfriend also recently went through a, a family emergency during our cabin retreat weekends two weeks ago. And seeing my girlfriend crying over her niece who had some sort of uh, health implications, uh, because it's not, I don't want to share it too much because it's not my story to tell. Uh, seeing my girlfriend crying for another human being and seeing you crying on the mic talking about your father's legacy and all the important pillars that he's instilled throughout your life. I think it talks about that grand transcendental love that's truly unconditional and it talks about the true potential of what human love is capable of. And it, in a very weird dichotomic way that it's very dualistic, right? It's obviously you're alluding a tragedy and you talked about you don't want to assign the label of beautiful towards death because death is a very sensitive topic. And I think that also talks about your linguistic sensitivity. But I do see there's a lot of beauty, not in the death itself, but the way it brings people together and the way it celebrates. And because I talked about I lost three friends to suicide um, during pandemic, it was very tough for me. But then seeing how their unfortunate tragedy of death or passing away brings their inner circles or bring their communities together more so than ever is so powerful. It's hard to articulate what that means, right? And then hearing about the powerful story of you just uh, shared with us, it's hard for me to describe why I cried. Aside from that, that love is so universal and it's so deeply ingrained in our human DNA. We are animals first and foremost, but you see how love is so universal, even for mammals, just animals. They're not humans. And you talk about what humans are truly capable of. I think that brings me a lot of hope. The world today, especially the United States, have so much conflict, so much you know, difficulties, so much hatred, right? Especially with the, in light of the most Asian American atrocities I've explained earlier, there's just so much hate. And I think it's easy for us to lose hope or get too cynical in that process. But very weirdly enough, hearing about your stories made me cry. But I wasn't crying out of sadness necessarily. Sure, that that was a reason. But I was crying because it made me almost see the light that we're truly, truly capable of. That unconditional love is not a exclusive privilege, only preserved for the family members. But the fact that you're able to experience that unconditional love on every aspect through your mentors, who had no blood relationship with you. Like, you're strangers until you you know, made the initiative to ask, hey, can I talk to you guys about my belief systems, right? That simple action created this far-reaching chain effect that now you guys are lifelong friends, lifelong mentors, and they've displayed what truly love is capable of. And your father, I think, displayed that even in a more elevated level. Our parents and the immigrants, I think the immigration American dream is not necessarily about like climbing the ladders in life, but being as a seeds of sacrifice for the offsprings. And I think, at least from my like from hearing about what you just shared, I think your dad would be so very proud of the man you become because you embody every virtues and every ethos we subscribed on this show. And I truly believe, from your caliber aside, from this amazing expert you become in the social linguistic field, I really think you're an amazing human being. And I think what you shared is truly, truly beautiful and transcends just your family or my family, but it talks in the universal capacity of what humans are capable of, which I think is love. So I really thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the fact that you all are doing this show, that you are 
uh, bringing life to important values and, and shedding light on them. And also just the fact that you all create a space where people can feel vulnerable. I think that speaks a lot to, to y'all's character. Just the fact that people are willing to, you know, open up like this. I don't think that's a, a common trait. You, I think, um, and not to get new agey, but a lot of the clubhouse rooms, people talk about giving off vibes and low frequency vibes and stuff. But I really do think there is a sense to which you can walk into a room and you can ask yourself, like, why is it? I don't know why I do or don't feel comfortable sharing certain things with this group. And you kind of guard yourself about certain aspects of your your identity or your being. Um, and I definitely think from the first moment that I've spoken with both of you, it was just kind of like, yeah, there's definitely a safety here. Like, there's definitely a true concern, a true empathy, no judgment. To borrow the phrase from Planet Fitness, uh, judgment-free zone. <laughs> yeah, because there are environments where people say they're judgment-free, but you sit back and you listen for a few minutes and you think, okay, I know how many layers of the onions I can peel in this setting, and it's not all of them. And then there are other settings where you're like, oh, I can talk about my bowel movements here. Nobody's going to think twice. Like, I can be, I have free reign here. Like, I know that nobody's going to think of me as less of a human being because I've shared that. And so I definitely think it speaks volumes to the environment that you've kind of curated and created here uh, on your podcast that people feel comfortable sharing. Thank you, man. So thank you. Yeah, we really take that compliment to heart. That's really what we are trying to do with this thing, really what we're trying to embody. And I really want to echo Ben of just the power and the beauty of the story you shared. Like I certainly teared up, like was moved more than I have been in a good while. Um, and really it speaks to the grandness of it all. Like we met for the first time over a Zoom call two hours ago. And just to be moved like that on a human level was just pretty miraculous. So, you know, as tragic as the story is, there is an overwhelming beauty in all of it, which I think really just, like Ben said, kind of gives hope for humanity in the future. And we're glad to be able to facilitate conversations like this because, you know, we always preach the like it's necessary to do the good things as much as it is to avoid the bad things so like as much drama or like difficult things might be going on showing up to these conversations always allows us to gain new perspectives connect with another human and it like brings us such passion on how we spend our weekend so you know we're happy to have these conversations with you man it's it's been an absolute pleasure i have many things to unpack and uh it's always it's always fun yeah, Jack. So yeah, that was such a powerful and mic drop moment. So we would definitely love to end this episode with uh, the question that we always pose is for our guests. Uh, in line with the ethos of discovering more about life from the collective experiences, in this case, from your experience, A, we would like to challenge you as the guest of this week. What are some areas or topics in your life, either personal or professional, that you'd like to discover more about? Feel free to share it with the audiences if you want to. And B, what are some areas in the listeners' lives that you'd like to challenge them to discover more about after listening to this extremely powerful and vulnerable conversations with you? Great. So first of all, in my personal life, one thing that I have been thinking a lot about lately through lots of discussions this is a little tangential from some of the things we've talked about today, but it does definitely border on some of the same topics. One thing that I struggle with personally, quite honestly, is living in the moment or enjoying the moment. So um, it's been interesting uh, in a lot of discussions I've had over the last few weeks, both on Clubhouse and in real life, 
just realizing, and I don't know if this comes from a place of scarcity, like I said, growing up uh, living poor, but a lot of times I'll realize, like even for example, when I was very young, I remember building up the expectation. My family was going to take a trip to Six Flags Great Adventure. And I built up this expectation for like three days in advance. I could barely sleep thinking about it. And then when we got at, to the theme park, as soon as I was done thinking, oh no, this day's going to be over soon. And then it will just be a memory. Like I, I, it'll be gone. It'll be gone. And I've been thinking about this for days and it's going to be gone rather than just saying, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy it now for what it is. And um, I think all throughout my career and stuff, I've struggled with that a lot of thinking like, just like I mentioned some of the classroom experiences, being excited, but thinking, oh, I wish I could capture. I wonder if there's a way I can capture this rather than just saying, you know what, let's just let this play out and see what happens and enjoy it for what it is. It doesn't have to be some giant thing that I record on audio or I take a picture of. It can just be something I enjoy right now. So that's something I'm challenging myself to be better about is living in and enjoying every moment for what it is. Um, some things or something I would probably just challenge the listeners to is, um, as we talked about the idea of intercultural competency and just in general empathy, uh, being in situations. And I think I talked about this with the four, the book again, it's on my Amazon list. The, the four agreements. Agreements. I keep finding them four attractions. Um, something that resonated with me about that is just, um, it's not to take everything personally. As I mentioned, my two friends slash mentors, when I've gone to them with big issues, they haven't immediately judged. They've said, what's going on here? You know, what is the bigger picture? Looking at context. Um, this goes back to the idea of biases as well. But just when you are confronted with a situation where somebody is lashing out at you, when you are confronted with a situation where somebody's not doing what you think they should be doing, when somebody's uh, acting in a way that you don't think they should be acting, rather than saying they're wrong, asking yourself, what is the bigger picture? What is the context that I might be missing? Um, we talk a lot in education about what we call the hidden curriculum, ways that we are unintentionally setting our students up for something. So for example, the classroom being set up a certain way, the things you have on the wall are part of the hidden curriculum that could be uh, doing, having some effect on your students. So when your student is acting a certain way, ask yourself, if I had the, the classroom in a C shape, would that change the dynamic? If I had different posters on the wall that were representative of a student's culture, I'm looking at my classroom wall and I'm saying, oh, every single picture here is of a able-bodied white male. Could that be having an impact on my students? So asking yourself, is there more to the story or is it about me? Um, so yeah, just that lens of asking bigger questions, background questions would be something I would challenge listeners to do. Great advice, man. Yeah, better questions, more questions, better answers. I think your two pieces of advice really sum up a lot of the things that we've talked about in the last few hours. Now, could you share about how listeners might be able to connect with you? Maybe let us know some of the things that you're up to. I know you were just involved in a conference. So there are other things like that coming up, but we'd love to be able to provide resources to our listeners to see what you're up to. Sure. So my current research is on international students who are non-native English speakers specifically. I'm doing a couple of research projects. Um, my international students that are at Limestone University come from all different backgrounds, both English speaking and non-English speaking. And so I've been doing kind of a longitudinal study over the last couple of years about acculturative stress, like the stress they feel coming to the United States and studying that they might not have been expecting. Kind of the idea of culture shock is the layman's term. Um, and also research on their second language acquisition. I'm finding that a lot of them were not prepared for different varieties of English, as I mentioned earlier on the show. 
So a lot of them are in classrooms and they're not necessarily connecting with students who speak types of English that they weren't taught. So if you're growing up in France and you're learning English as a second language, you're constantly hearing standard academic English. Then they come to a classroom where somebody's speaking with a Southern accent or African-American vernacular English, and they're saying, I have no idea what they're saying, or I don't know how to engage with them. And so there is a disconnect. And I think it does disrupt the human experience when we're not having portals open to all access all different types of people. Um, so that's kind of the current research I'm doing that I'll be presenting on at the conference uh, later this month for the Comparative and International Education Society. Uh, I would love to engage with other people who are doing other kinds of research or that have any questions or that are um, that would enrich my life. And you can reach me. I have a LinkedIn page. My name on there is Jack Knipe, K-N-I-P-E. Or you can email me. My email address that is probably the most accessible would be J-M as in Martin, K as in Knipe, 360 at georgetown.edu. Um, so yes, definitely reach out to me with an email or connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to be able to engage with more people. I almost said this is Jack and I'm done speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, true unsung hero of this episode is Clubhouse for being such a enriching and powerful platform that enables us to connect with each other from so far away because you're in South Carolina and we're based in Philadelphia as of now. Like I'm always pleasantly surprised by the depth of talents I encounter on Clubhouse, you included. And I'm very, very, you know, utterly grateful for Clubhouse for bringing us together and for us to use Clubhouse as an extended arm of recruitment to recruit you on the show. And obviously you and I, we've connected on a personal level even before the podcast came into picture. But like, I'm personally very honored to have you on this show to just share stories after stories after stories after stories that just kept on resonating with me personally and i know without a shadow of doubt that some of the listeners taken away some very powerful lessons from today's episodes and from your experience and you know to the listeners as always we will include all the show notes in the below we will include his instagram linkedin his research paper his current topics and jack is also very active on clubhouse and he's a brilliant speaker as you've heard from this episode so we like to urge the listeners who have access to Clubhouse to check him out and, you know, follow each other and just converse with him in real time rather than just listening through a filter version like this show. So and as always, um, to all the listeners and to you, Jack, especially, thank you for you know joining us on this conversations, uh, blessing us with so much wisdom and so much experiments of yours, experience of yours and to the listeners, as always, thank you for listening and hope to discover more with you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.